0: We're looking down the barrel of a long, cold winter. From low wages to soaring rents, battle lines are being drawn between working people and everyone else. Some politicians took advantage of the pandemic to help landlords and big business. Now, ordinary people are being asked to bear the brunt of our economic woes. But there have been moments of brightness over the past few years where the truth has shone through. We have a choice about how we run the economy. As we face the biggest squeeze in living standards since the 50s, who is actually trying to build an economy that works for everyone? From strikes for better pay to campaigns against new fossil fuels, people across the UK are demanding something better. In this mini-series of the New Economics podcast, we'll discover how our economy has been run over the past few years and look at the key battlegrounds for those fighting to change the rules. The London Fire Brigade has just declared a major incident in response to a huge surge in fires across the capital today. Our railways, our water pipes, all of these sorts of infrastructure are just not really equipped yet to to deal with these sorts of temperatures. It's just so dry now that it's just not ready for thunderstorms. And thunderstorms can cause really serious problems. We see it worldwide. Drought followed by heavy rain causes flooding. 2022, a year of extremes. During the 40-degree summer heat, roads melted and railway lines buckled. The London Fire Brigade had its busiest day since the Blitz, as record temperatures led to hundreds of fires across the city. When it finally rained a month later, the Met Office warned of flood risk. But after a dangerously hot summer, we're now worrying about whether we can afford our energy bills during a long, cold winter the price gap has increased and will increase from the 1st of October um, to be around double what it was last year. You know, a lot of people are going to be completely unable to afford this. You know, we've got a lot of people in fuel poverty already, already with the current prices. So, yeah, we're still going to see a lot of people struggling from this, I think.
1: It's going to really destroy the fabric of our society. It's not only what is happening in our homes, but it- you know, whether there are even going to be businesses. This
0: was the year that the climate crisis collided with the scandalously high cost of living. But how are the two related? Why are fossil fuel companies making bumper profits while the rest of us are worried about paying our bills? And can we stay warm while making sure oil and gas stay safely under the North Sea? Welcome to this special mini-series of the New Economics Podcast. This week, we're asking, Can we solve the cost of living and climate crises together? I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. Stay with us. So this week, I'm really pleased to be joined down the line by Mika Minio, Climate and Industry Lead at the Trades Union Congress. Hi, Mika. Hi
1: there. Thanks for
0: having me on. Thanks so much for being with us. And we also are joined by the fantastic friend of the pod, Tessa Khan, environmental lawyer and founder and director of Uplift. Hi, Tessa. Hi, Aisha.
2: I'm delighted to be back.
0: Fantastic. Okay, we've got lots to get through. So let's dive in. We'll start with you, Mika. So as I said in the intro, we know that oil and gas companies like Shell and BP have been raking in record profits this year. We've been talking about it a lot. At the same time, energy bills and food prices are, of course, going up and up and up. So, first of all, if you could just give us a little explainer on what these two things have to do with each other.
1: Well, I guess our our energy bills are largely derived from the energy and specifically the electricity and the gas that we use in our homes. And in that case, part of that, the gas, is gas that is sourced from ultimately oil and gas companies. So that might be BP and Shell. And a lot of other companies extracting it from North Sea. Also, a bunch of it comes from Norway through pipelines. And a lot of it is imported on LNG tankers from around the world. So effectively, we're paying through our high bills directly to those companies. And there's a whole range of reasons for why the gas price and oil price is so high. And partly because of the war in Ukraine, Russia's invasion, also Putin limiting supplies already for about a year now, driving prices up. And we're seeing it again and again with the cuts through Nord Stream. There's also speculation involved and companies profiting even further from those high prices. But effectively, there's a direct correlation. BP and Shell and the other oil companies make mega profits because people are paying a lot for their oil and gas. And those people are us.
0: Okay. And so how much are energy prices driving the massive rise in inflation that we're seeing right now? Um maybe we'll come to you first Mika and then Tessa if you want to jump in
1: uh so that energy price played a very large part in it partly directly because you know as the prices go up and our bills go up that is directly feeds into inflation but then also because of course energy underlies a lot of other products and feeds into a lot of other products in the across the economy across society so earlier on you mentioned um food prices going up. And that's for a range of reasons, but partly because getting food to the supermarket and ultimately onto your table involves energy being used, whether it's petrol, whether it's gas. So the high oil and gas prices feed in directly through our high energy bills. And possibly, I think I've seen various estimates of, let's say, 2% or more of the 10% inflation is from those high bills directly. And then there's also how it percolates through the rest of the economy.
2: Yeah, I would just add to that that the UK is actually more exposed to the global gas price spike because of the extent to which we are dependent on gas to heat our homes. So 85% of homes in the UK are heated through gas infrastructure like gas boilers and we also have a significant proportion of gas in our power mix. Um, So as a result of that, basically energy bills in the UK are higher than anywhere else on the continent. So it's a real challenge, I think, for us to get off gas because ultimately that is what is driving the increase in energy bills.
1: And just to further add to what Tess said, I think what's, what's almost ironic about that is, of course, here in the UK, we don't use very much gas coming from Russia. When this crisis started, then I remember being asked on interviews and radio and other places going, oh, well, surely this will affect people in Germany lots because they're really dependent on Russian gas and it won't really affect us. But ultimately, when you look at how the oil and gas market works around the world and in the UK, the fact that we're so dependent on fossil gas is what drives our high ability, even if not very much of it, barely any is coming directly from Russia.
0: Can we talk for a second about the energy price cap coming to you, Tessa? How do massive oil and gas profits interact with the energy price cap? How should we understand that? Because obviously that's supposed to limit how much energy companies can charge.
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. So the price cap was introduced, I think, in 2019, basically to protect consumers from energy suppliers who have consumers on sort of default tariffs, just continuing to increase their prices without consumers really having much choice in the matter but basically we are now increasing the price cap more frequently and also to a greater degree than normal because energy suppliers are claiming that they can't absorb the costs of uh, buying gas wholesale and it's the wholesale price of gas that's increased about tenfold in the last year or so. So that's the way that those two things are interacting.
0: Okay, thanks. That's super helpful. So we're not used to thinking of summer heat as dangerous in this country, but Mika, you've argued that workers should be protected from working in extremely hot conditions. And that might seem a bit of a pivot, but we're going to go on to to talk about the climate crisis more specifically around heat and the heat wave that we've seen in a second. So Mika, could you kind of kick us off by telling us a bit more about the protections you've been calling for?
1: Sure. I mean, this summer we've seen these absolutely extreme new temperatures in the UK of hitting 40 degrees in London, which is barely imaginable if you think back 10, 20 years ago. And that brings a new new working environment, a new living environment that this country just isn't adapted to. If you think of whether it's our buildings or our practices, or our laws and our rules, those were all developed in the 20th century, except for the really old in the from the 19th century, and they were built for a different climate. So whether that's, you know, our offices, or the laws that regulate how we work, were set up for a different climate, where you didn't hit these 40 degree temperatures. And when it gets that hot, then it's particularly the low paid key workers, whether it's people harvesting food in fields, people stacking shelves, workers delivering, workers in, let's say, tube workers in tunnels in London who are exposed to increasingly dangerous conditions, which can involve lung problems, heart failure, heat stress, heat exhaustion that people aren't prepared for. And as a result, what you get often, and we've heard again and again of bosses pushing people to just keep working as usual, as normal, as if it wasn't that hot. And that involves, um, we heard of tube workers in London, and it gets really hot down there in the tunnel, like For commuters You're in, who might be in there for 20 minutes, half an hour, it's pretty extreme. But if you're down there for hours, it can get extremely difficult. So they asked for fresh water. And they were told, no, why should they get water? It's just a normal day. And they were like, it's not a normal day. <laughs> it's really, really hot. And they ended up walking out because if you are in imminent danger through the conditions in your work, then you can say I can't work anymore. And they said we can't. They walked out, the station closed until that was resolved. But we've seen heard accounts of that to varying degrees across the country, where what we need in the immediate term is we need more protection for workers to be able to say, actually, this isn't safe and that should include a maximum working temperature, indoor working temperature of thirty degrees. We also think employers should start taking action at twenty-four degrees. But also, we need to change the buildings that we work in because, as I said, they're not built for this environment and for these temperatures. So we need to retrofit them, and that's retrofitting and changing the way we our buildings are heated and cooled is something that's relevant both for these extreme summer temperatures, but also for the winter when we're used to you know using up a lot of gas to stay warm, and we need to change our buildings so they're prepared future-proofed for both.
0: Okay, that makes sense. Let's take a step back for a second and think about how we got here, because I know there's been lots of conversations coming to the fore about nationalisation and privatisation, which feels you know, really key here. When British gas and other parts of our energy sector were privatised in the late 80s and early 90s what did that mean for ordinary people and and a question i guess for both of you is what really was the rationale there and is that how might we start to unpick that i guess and how we how are we seeing it still playing out today
1: i guess uh i mean there's the the public stated rationale from um Thatcher was to create a shareholder democracy. The quite clear rationale heard repeatedly from civil servants who worked on delivering that privatisation at the time was that it was about delivering significant return, significant profit for investors, effectively enabling people, some people, people who already had money, to make a lot more money, both in the immediate term through the privatisation, but then what we've also seen as those companies have continued to make billions and extract billions both from what's effectively our national infrastructure and from us as consumers, as as people who use utilities, whether it's water or energy, over the past 30 years. And that's been the experience, I guess, your, your first question, was, well, how did it affect people? So an, a massive effect was that people have paid... Year after year after year, far more than was necessary so that global investors, not your, you know, this isn't about people's pension funds. This is about global investors, people who, and a small number of people who have a lot of money in these firms to enable them to extract billions through the process. But it's also meant terrible service. It's also meant that, you know, when you look at the people's satisfaction rating with particularly with the big six, now the big five retail companies, they've been atrocious. There's extremely low trust. When you've got a problem, you try and get hold of customer service that can take forever, you can't get it sorted. And we've also seen massive delays in terms of net zero and decarbonization, because ultimately those privatized firms haven't prioritized getting us to a zero-carbon future. They haven't prioritised taking care of their customers, particularly their low-income customers, and what they have prioritised is extracting profit. I mean, there's both the kind of retail companies, but if you look like in London here, the UK Power Networks is owned by one Hong Kong-based billionaire who takes hundreds of millions out in dividends most years, and we are paying for that.
2: And just to add to that, um, the privatisation of the utility market of energy suppliers has also led to deregulation of the market that means that we've had a number of energy companies come into the market that haven't been prepared at all to deal with the increase in gas prices and so there have been more than I think 30 companies that have gone bust with about 2 million customers between them in the last year alone as prices have increased and obviously that's been a huge problem for the regulator to then deal with in terms of making sure that those customers are taken care of. But it's also added about £100 to people's energy bills um, just to deal with those failures within the market.
0: So there was a, a windfall tax introduced um, this year, which you know some people saw as a win and other organisations are pointing out that there's actually quite a lot of problems with it. Tessa is that Was that and is that uh, a means to kind of address some of the points that you laid out there?
2: Well, a windfall tax is a way of clawing back some of the record profits that oil and gas companies have been making and redistributing them to households who are really in despair, um, looking at their energy bills now and into the future. So it's a useful mechanism for doing that. The windfall tax and the other good thing about a windfall tax in principle in the UK is that it goes some way to redressing the fact that we have had the most generous tax regime in the world for oil and gas companies, which has made the UK the most profitable country in the world for large oil and gas projects. But there are a number of problems with the windfall tax that was imposed. Um, The first is that it's not big enough. So even with the windfall tax, which is a 25% levy Uh, levied on profits over the next three years. That still doesn't bring the UK's headline tax rate on the oil and gas industry up to the global average, which is a 70% tax rate. We're still at 65%. So there's obviously a lot more room for the government to move in terms of really taking uh, or holding oil and gas companies to account for the profits that they've recently made. It's also time bound, as I said. It only Will apply for the next three years and the oil and gas industry lobbied extremely hard to make sure that the windfall tax expires, at which point we'll revert to having a ludicrously generous tax regime. And then finally, and hugely problematically, it's got a massive loophole built into it that means that if you invest in a new oil and gas project in the UK, if you're an oil and gas company, you effectively get 91p off the pound um, in terms of how much you invest, you get a massive write-off of your windfall tax bill, which different estimates suggest mean that the government's foregoing up to £2.5 billion per year as a result of that loophole. So there's a lot to be done to improve the windfall tax, but it's a relief after so many years of oil and gas companies really just, I think, making a mockery of the tax system and getting basically everything they ask for from government to see that government is finally under huge amounts of public pressure moving a- at least a little on the issue.
0: Wow. I mean, I want to talk about that issue of public pressure for a minute and kind of public perceptions in general, because, you know, bringing it back to the skyrocketing energy bills. A question for both of you is to what extent do you think that the bumper profits for fossil fuel companies that we've been talking about set against the backdrop of the high cost of living has shifted how people think about the industry, the perceptions that people have of energy companies and what that could mean?
2: So in short, I think the public is disgusted at the scale of profiteering that's happening at the moment in the oil and gas sector. And they understand that the same forces that are driving up industry profits are exactly the same forces that are also driving up their energy bills and are expected to push at least a third of households across the UK into fuel poverty by the end of the year. And you've, of course, had you know, shameless statements from, for example, the CEO of BP describing the current conditions as being a cash machine for his companies engaging in multi-billion dollar share buybacks you know, not really making any pretense of doing anything other than paying down debt and paying big dividends to shareholders with the profit that they're making. And all of the public polling in the run-up to the government finally caving. And as I said, this is a government that is really the friend, a very reliable friend of the industry. The government finally, I think, reluctantly imposing the windfall tax was in the light of consistent public polling showing that people wanted energy companies to contribute to this massive cost of living scandal that they're experiencing that's directly associated with the cost of energy.
1: I think people are pretty furious at the moment from what I've heard of the different campaigns that have been kicking up and starting up in the last few months on the enough is enough campaign and the don't pay UK campaign where people are talking about whether to not pay their bills come come 1st of October, if enough people sign up to the pledge, that there's a lot of people who aren't your kind of usual activists, your people who are already engaged with these issues, people who are already mobilized, organized around climate or around, maybe let's say against austerity, but people who are going, well, how will I, how will I keep being able to afford to buy food? How will I be able to pay my bills while they see these mega profits that are being made? So I think there are lots of people getting engaged and starting to join in organizing and building power. I think there's a question on how does that get maintained over time, because there's the kind of spontaneous anger that comes from seeing headlines about BP has made another X billion pounds in profit and knowing that your bill will go up, but turning that into a movement where people stay engaged for months, for years, because that's ultimately what we need if we're going to transform our energy system, if we're going to shift it to something which is publicly owned, where actually the oil and gas companies pay proper taxes year after year after year, and we don't revert back to a situation where we're paying them taxes, which is what we saw for many recent years, and also where we get that transformation to a zero carbon society where we're not pumping out co2 and we can live safer and happier and lives in a cleaner environment we won't win all of that in the next three months or six months so i think there's a key question on the people who are getting angry now how how do they remain engaged over the next few years
2: yeah i think um it's a really important point that this may seem like a temporary spike in public engagement with the oil and gas industry and anger around energy bills but actually, gas prices, which you know are ultimately what is driving up people's energy bills in the UK, are forecast to stay exceptionally high until 2025, if not beyond that, according to the Office for Budget Responsibility and other analysts. So this isn't just a 2022 problem. Um, this is a multi-year problem that unless we address the root cause of, we're going to be dealing with in the long term. And so I think it's actually a huge opportunity to engage people with the fact that we have a massive structural problem in our energy system which is our dependency on gas and that oil and gas companies drilling for more gas isn't going to get us out of it and that that's another way that we can make sure that people are mobilised against the industry who are obviously using the crisis and since Russia invaded Ukraine have incredibly opportunistically uh, advocated and lobbied for more production as, as a solution to this.
0: Well, yeah, I wanted to talk about that a little bit, actually, the kind of um, conservative or right wing narrative around this, which at times seems to be going in a kind of culture wars direction. So you've got, you know, environmentalists for a long time kind of trying to position oil and gas execs as the bad guys. And then Liz Truss coming out and saying, actually, they're they're not the bad guys. You know, there's nothing wrong with business. And then you've got politicians like Steve Baker and Nigel Farage trying to push the idea that our climate commitments are actually what is leading to such High inflation, and then finally, you've you've got the same people kind of pushing the idea that us relying on clean, green, renewable energy like wind and solar is too risky, and actually, we we need to be um, continuing to to focus on on foreign energy. So, yeah, just wondering if um if any if either of you wanted to kind of respond on that on how we combat the narrative of the right or the conservative right around this.
1: So, I guess there's. A very opportunistic intervention that we've seen of a lot of the people who are driving Brexit have now kind of trying to build up this new attack on climate action from Farage and from the Net zero scrutiny group, et cetera, and that they've used a lot of the language that was also used to some extent in in their push for Brexit around people being left behind, about people being disenfranchised, about elite politics, making decisions about fairness, about what happens to regions used to have more manufacturing, more industry. And I think that's dangerous because it clearly was effective in making Brexit happen. And that does create risks in terms of undermining where we currently are, where actually most people in this country think that climate action is extremely important and believe in investing. And people are more pro-climate action than the government generally are. And I think it's tempting to go, oh, well, people are so invested that, you know, Farage and the others won't be able to shift those values, shift that commitment. But for a start, people thought similar about Brexit, that, you know, everybody believed in the EU, so surely it was never going to be possible. And also, I think we do need to recognize that a climate transition will affect many lives in complicated ways. The key thing that we need to make sure is that it improves people's lives as much as possible. But it's not by default that it would, especially a more neoliberal climate transition that prioritizes giving richer people more incentives and drops the costs on poorer people that, let's say, is fine with shutting down polluting manufacturing within the UK and doesn't make sure that we create new manufacturing jobs or decarbonize manufacturing where possible, risks leaving more people behind and creating an experience where people see, oh, this is elites in London making decisions. And it doesn't need to be that way, and it isn't to some extent that way. But making sure that we get the right outcomes Involves, you know, supporting struggles by steel workers in South Wales, in Port Talbot, to decarbonize their steel plant, which they're trying to do. They want to make that happen. It means supporting aerospace workers who currently make planes, who want to have a Green New Deal for their factory and make components for wind turbines or for other parts of the zero carbon economy. It means supporting automotive workers who want shift to making electric vehicles or other, other zero carbon Materials And I think those struggles are all live struggles in a lot of places where actually it's quite crucial that we maintain that buy-in support, because those are the, a lot of the same places that Farage claims to speak for. And at the moment, actually, in those places, people, and particularly organized workers, will tell Farage to go away. Do I actually... Our struggle has got nothing to do with what you're saying. And what you're saying of drop the climate action would be worse for our jobs and worse for our communities. But we need to make sure that the climate movement is standing by them. And that's where the kind of climate change and climate activism and trade unions can do a lot of work together of going, well, actually, if we want to stand up to those right wing narratives and to those opportunistic attempts to divert people away from climate action, then that means embedding social justice very much in what we're fighting for and what we're building.
2: Yeah, I completely agree with everything Mika said. And I also think that we've actually got an exceptional opportunity as a result of the energy affordability crisis we're dealing with, because unlike the position that the climate movement usually finds itself in, where you know advocating, for example, uh, for the end of oil and gas expansion is usually a climate argument that means pointing to pretty intangible benefits for most people, notwithstanding, obviously, the heat wave and everything else we've been dealing with in the UK this summer, but generally people think about the benefits of acting on climate change as being pretty abstract. But here, gas, which is obviously a fossil fuel, which together with oil is you know responsible for more than 80% of greenhouse gas emissions. Gas is also what is driving up their energy bills, And the solutions that a lot of organizations, including NEF and Uplift and others in the context of a new campaign called Warm This Winter, but the solutions of, for example, upgrading people's homes as a means of reducing energy waste and therefore reducing people's energy bills, that has all kinds of co-benefits for people that they will feel in a really tangible way insofar as Warm homes means better health, better educational outcomes, and those are immediate, and those are also measures that the government can take right away and people will feel the benefits within months. Also, unlocking renewable energy, you know, which in the UK has been blocked onshore for the most part, despite that also now being four times cheaper than gas. If the government was to do that, that would also make a difference and find a way of bringing that energy to market, which, again, is only a matter of months or a year or two away, that would also make an immediate difference to what people are paying for energy. So really I think we are on the precipice of being able to demonstrate in really concrete ways how addressing the root cause of the climate crisis and addressing the root cause of the cost of living scandal is effectively the same and unlocks a huge amount of benefits that people can can feel in a really tangible and material way now.
0: Yeah, I mean, it certainly sounds like that kind of approach and that campaign that you're talking about, Tessa, the warmest Winter campaign, alongside what you've been talking about, Mika, of the organising and standing in solidarity with workers and folks who are at the sharp end of this, it has to be the only way forward. And and it seems to me to be a very effective one. I want to just end by talking about the climate movement itself, because we have a lot of um, listeners involved in the movement and, and previous guests who are involved in the movement. And a question I guess that's on a lot of people's minds is at the moment, we've seen lots of activists mobilized to try and stop new oil and gas developments in the North Sea, including groups like Just Stop Oil. But we've heard, you know, from yourselves and from others that the UK government doesn't seem to have got the memo um, and are forging ahead, not only forging ahead, but also Incentivizing these these things, so maybe starting with you, Tessa, are activist oppositions to new oil and gas developments kind of the current front line for the UK climate movement? Would you say that's where most of the action is, and and perhaps should be?
2: Well, I think it's certainly where there's a lot of energy, especially among younger activists, and I think that that's expanding, but. It is so clear at the moment that aside from the fact that, you know, the oil and gas industry is responsible for the climate crisis, they're now also responsible for this really obscene profiteering that everybody's hearing about. And so when they find out that, for example, you know, by opening up a new oil field, Rosebank, which is a large new oil field that's up for approval this year, which is run by Equinor, you know, the Norwegian state owned oil company. Equinor and its partners are going to get £800 million pounds off their windfall tax bill. That sort of brings together two issues that are really infuriating people at the moment. So I think there is a lot of energy and anger that we can harness against the oil and gas industry. And that obviously, until we get oil and gas out of our political system, which is the other reason to campaign against the oil and gas industry, but also out of our energy mix we're going to be dealing with, as I said, high energy prices, not to mention all of the climate impacts for years to come.
0: Mika, what say you? to Same question. Where's the movement at? Do you agree with with Tessa's analysis? And and what role do unions play in all of this?
1: I think there's quite a lot of different stuff going on within um, the kind of broader climate movement. So I think, yes, there are are people mobilising around new oil fields, and that's important. We've obviously also seen people doing their... Insulate Britain protests, taking quite similar tactics at, at points of doing mass disruption. And then there's also people now doing a lot of the, the organizing around not paying their bills, where they're not frontlining climate narratives, but that's actually where a lot a lot of the people doing the kind of background organizing are coming from. And then there's also people doing kind of broader Green New Deal stuff, sometimes LinkedIn with insulation stuff, sometimes LinkedIn with restructuring our economy. So I don't think it's like one element. I think a lot of them have energy at the moment. It's quite exciting seeing how much energy the climate movement has because, you know, it's kind of gone in waves. I think it's going to be key, as Tessa said earlier, to make sure they use that opportunity that exists at the moment of keeping the alliances and keeping the, the overlaps Clear between organizing on climate, organizing on social justice, organizing on workers' rights, organizing on on that kind of better future for all of us because it's it's quite easy to end up getting getting sucked into narrower frames and that's where government and also companies can can divide people and if there's one thing that conservative governments tend to be quite good at it's at dividing people and pitting people against each other and I think that's something that we need to watch out for. That we don't end up in a situation where it's climate movements versus trade unionists, or the kind of climate action versus reducing bills, and that we know that the truth is that at the moment our bills, you know, when we're at risk of paying five thousand five hundred pounds, that's because of the gas price, and we also know that renewables currently are significantly cheaper. And we also know that insulating our homes, retrofitting our homes, which is good for the climate, would also be good for our bills. That is all a reality. But we also know that staying in the EU would have been better as a reality. So just because something is real doesn't necessarily mean that everybody believes that. And that um, that's where the narrative is. So I think it's going to be key to make sure that we win those narrative debates and go, actually, this is where these things are linked. And this is where we can build power. And I think there are lots of opportunities on that. But we need to keep using those opportunities and putting, leaning into them and going, These this is where the struggles connect.
0: Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, uh, certainly in the work that we see at NEON, it feels like there is that attempt in from some spaces to hit the movement against each other, as you say, or different elements of it. We've seen this with the kind of climate justice versus climate, exactly as you said, unions versus campaigners, and all these kind of very unhelpful ways. And part of, I guess, my concern around it is often when we talk to folks in focus groups or kind of um, people not involved in activism, you know, what we hear is, I guess, a narrative that the left or progressives are kind of wanting to act too quickly right they're wanting to be too radical and for most people especially when it comes to things like climate which makes them think of having boilers ripped out of their homes and other things the idea of doing anything quickly even though that's 100% what's desired feels scary and what they're being told by you know people on the other side of the of the coin is actually you know let's be sensible let's do this slowly let's take it incrementally which understandably arguably seems to be slightly more rational even though it's absolutely not what we need. So so I guess it's just kind of roundabout way of saying that we, how do we get better at telling a story that both portrays the urgency of this moment, but also makes it feel, makes it feel possible and makes it feel uh, less intimidating for people. Just before I come to you with the kind of final question, which is around what solid things that we need to be seeing from the government in the next few months. I wanted to just quickly ask about legal challenges, because I know last time you were on the pod, Tessa, we were talking about whether legal challenges could kind of mark a new wave of fighting the climate crisis in the courts. And that was summer last year, 2021. So I mean, how is the landscape looking now? One thing that's on my mind, I know a Dutch court ruled that Shell needed to reduce its emissions by 45% by 2030, but then they're still trying to make Jackdaw happen. So does that mean these legal challenges don't work? Yeah. What's going on there?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. And I think that in short, the fact that, you know, Shell is planning to expand oil and gas production, not just in the UK, but in South Africa and a bunch of other places, is illustrative of why litigation on its own is not sufficient to create accountability for really powerful actors, whether that's national governments or big oil and gas companies. So, you know, I think the discussion we had last summer was really about why it's important to make sure that any legal challenge is embedded in a much more robust campaign strategy that creates maximum pressure from lots of different quarters. And you're not just relying on what happens in a court. Um, but, you know, I think that litigation continues to be a really useful tool for introducing a new kind of risk for oil and gas companies whenever they choose to open up new projects. And I know that Greenpeace are currently suing the government over its approval of Jackdaw, effectively, saying that the approval of that field was unlawful and that, you know, they are prepared to throw down that mantle anytime a new oil and gas field gets approved. And actually, these challenges led recently to the UK's Court of Appeal, which is the second highest court um, in the UK, finding for the first time that there was a real argument for accounting for the emissions that come from burning oil and gas when you assess the environmental impact of a project. So at the moment when the government regulator, and this will sound quite unbelievable, but when a government regulator assesses the environmental impact of, say, a new gas field like Jackdaw, it just looks at the climate impacts associated with extracting the gas out of the North Sea but not burning the gas that is produced by the field and so lawyers and campaigners have been arguing for a very long time that that's absurd and a rigorous environmental assessment should also take into account those combustion emissions and a court of appeal in the UK recently partly agreed with that and that that question is now sitting with the supreme court and if the supreme court agrees with campaigners then that will fundamentally change the parameters that environmental impact assessments have to take. And it could mean, you know, a much more robust approach to thinking about the climate impact of those projects. So, you know, that's to say that there is definitely still value in those challenges. But when we are up against such a powerful industry, and we are on the timeline that we're on, we've got to basically throw everything at the wall, not just litigation.
0: So to that end, then, my kind of parting question for you both is specifically thinking about the part of the thing that we're throwing at the wall. Let's say it's spaghetti. Thinking about the the strands of the spaghetti, which are to do with the government, what do we need to be seeing from them uh, this winter to make sure we can, in fact, stay warm, as Tessa has said? And also in the winters to come. So uh, I'll just take each of you in turn. I guess we can go with, you know, in the short term, what do you think is possible and and that we perhaps even expect or demand from this government this winter, and then maybe also a kind of a longer term prediction for what we need to be
1: demanding beyond that. So I think we need to demand all of it right now, both the short term and the long term, because. It takes a while to make the long term happen and because this is the crisis moment. So this is the political opportunity to actually force that shift and that change. I think immediate action that we need to see. So government needs to operate universal credit, state pension, also the minimum wage. Now, that will happen anyway in the spring, in April. That's when it generally happens. But because we're facing the crisis now and the winter will be really difficult, that operating really should happen in October in line with inflation. And we also need to see pay boosted across the board so government has more ability to do that, particularly in the public sector, obviously, so it should take a lead there. And we need to see, but we do need to see pay increased everywhere. That's why people are striking throughout the summer. And if people have pay increase in line with inflation or beyond that, then they won't struggle as much. And I think inflation, a lot of us don't, don't remember the, the kind of periods in the 70s when there was really high inflation. And I think it's easy to forget that there was really high inflation, but actually pay generally increased more than inflation at that point. So that meant that people didn't get poorer <laughs> each year, whereas now we're, there's a kind of default assumption of at best we'd get pay in line with inflation. So government needs to do that immediately. And um, one way that government can find the cash to make some of those things happen... We as the TUC have called for an increased windfall tax, increasing it by another 20%, also removing the tax breaks and the loopholes that Sunak brought in earlier this year. So the money is there as long as it's pulled in from the sources where they're currently making a lot of money and redistributing it to those who are going to struggle massively through the winter. That's immediate term. We also need to right now be demanding public ownership. So the TEC has called for public ownership of the energy retail companies when we cost it up. How much that would cost? We're only calling for the big five. Some people are calling for more. We're saying take the big five into public ownership. That would cost less than three billion pounds. BP's profit, quarterly profit, so you know, what many billions more than that. We also need to accelerate a retrofit of everybody's homes, but starting with the most vulnerable, led by councils doing it in house, making sure that jobs are good, that there's planning, that we're building up the skilled workforce because at the moment we don't have a skilled workforce for retrofitting homes, and going street by street in a planned way, starting off with social homes and also doing private rental. That retrofitting needs to accelerate as quickly as possible so that we're actually getting into some of those this winter. If we it, if we'd done the level of retrofitting homes that TUC, for example, called for during the pandemic, then our gas use would already be vastly reduced. And ultimately, there'd be less revenue off the back of that going to support to finance the war in Ukraine. We also need an accelerated rollout of green infrastructure, whether that's increasing offshore wind and other renewables, or decarbonizing our heavy industry so that it's using less gas, using less electricity, and increasing public transport so that we can shift our society as a whole into a zero carbon future, which is also less dependent on those high fossil gas prices that we're seeing at the moment. And I think we need to be making those big calls in the present tense, those kind of long term structural changes. As I said, we can force that change in those commitments now and when we're in the crisis
0: thanks so much Mika, and thanks for the reframe all the kind of pushback on the frame there because I think that I think you're right. it's really, really important and in some ways I'm kind of playing into that narrative myself by uh, positioning like that. so thank you. Tessa, last word to you what what do you reckon? What do we need to be calling for
2: why? wholeheartedly adopt and endorse everything that Meek has just said. Um, The only thing I think that I would add to that is that the government's got to stop propping up the oil and gas industry and approving new oil and gas fields, which A, overwhelmingly in the UK, oil fields, 80% of which is exported, so not going to meet domestic energy demand. Um, B, both industry and the government have it put on the record that opening up new gas fields in the UK won't bring down the price of gas or people's energy bills. So query what the value is of increasing our access to a product that we can't afford and then see every time we open up one of these new fields we lock ourselves in to dependency on oil and gas and a project like Rosebank, for example, is an oil field with a multi-decade lifetime and even putting aside the fact that that is clearly irreconcilable with staying within a safe climate it's also going to lock us into dependency and the existence of fossil fuel infrastructure in the UK when we simply can't afford that either.
0: Okay I mean it sounds like there's lots of things that you're both working on um, that folks will definitely want to get involved in and, and hear more about so that is all we've got time for on this episode of the New Economics Podcast but firstly coming to you Mika Minio um Thank you so much for being with us. So people do want to find out more about your work. How can they do that?
1: Um, So the Trade Union Congress, which I work, publishes a lot of resources. It puts out what we're calling for, our campaigns. And you can also follow us on Twitter. You can follow me on Twitter. But I guess the key thing I'd say is join your union. Join a union and get involved in organising within the union and work within the union um, to organise both on workers' rights, on social justice and on climate justice.
0: Thank you, Mika. Tessa Khan, same question.
2: I would really encourage people to get involved in the uh, Stop Jackdaw, Stop Cambo Coalition, which will be focusing on Rosebank shortly and other big new oil and gas projects that the UK is trying to approve so, so we stopped that and the other big campaign that it would be great for people to get involved in is Warm This Winter which is bringing together fuel poverty and anti-poverty groups with those of us working on
0: climate Fantastic thank you both so much for being with me it's been a really rich conversation that is it for today's new economics podcast but we will be back soon with more don't worry if you've enjoyed this episode please tell someone about it as always you can drop us a line with your comments and questions we're at NEF on twitter the new economics podcast is brought to you by the new economics foundation produced by becky malone and researched by margaret welsh i'm aisha thomas-smith stay safe